Well, hello, Dini family. I'll miss you another week, but we are excited to enter into Passion Week together and excited next Sunday to do something special for Easter. Now, this week, we're going to ask all of you to please get on Zoom because for Easter Sunday, we are going to be having a live service over Zoom. So at 10 o'clock Sunday morning, we'll gather in our homes and individual families, but we'll all be sharing the same service at the same time live, including communion. So this week, we are going to be delivering to you communion packets for you to celebrate with your family, those who are saved, as we walk through that together. And so during this week that we would love especially to be together, but for safety reasons, we're unable to, we do want to do a couple of things to make this more of a family celebration of our Lord's death and resurrection. Namely, we look forward to worshiping together 10 o'clock Sunday morning, and then also to be able to celebrate communion together this week. And so the elders and people in the church will be uh, arranging a time to drop by each home in the church to bring you a communion packet, and then we will celebrate that together on Sunday. So also on the website, we'll be indicating every day what our Lord was doing that day of the Passion Week. And so this evening, if you would like to uh, read in John 12 about Mary's anointing of our Lord on, in Bethany in preparation for his death, tomorrow is Palm Sunday, and there's some texts that have been sent out on WhatsApp that will also be placed on the website to guide you through that. And day by day, we'll walk with our Lord to the cross, to the grave, and up and beyond. And so I invite you to read those, to read those with your family, as we focus our mind on the death and resurrection of our Lord and lift our hearts to Him. We love you, we're praying for you, and we look forward to worshiping to you on Sunday. And also this Thursday night in our midweek gathering, we're going to be doing a special devotion in preparation for Good Friday, uh, the day that our Lord was crucified. So again, we invite you and encourage you to get Zoom on your computers, your iPads, your devices, so that we can gather together to catch up, to pray, to open the Word, and to prepare our hearts for this most momentous weekend in the Christian calendar. We love you, and we look forward to seeing you next weekend. Hello, Dina Community Church. Uh, welcome you to our Palm Sunday uh, service. Uh, happy Palm Sunday to you and your family. I hope that uh, you find time this week to celebrate uh, the Passion Week, and uh, and here we go. Uh, my name, if you don't know me, my name is Carrie Hall, and uh, it's a joy to deliver God's Word to you tonight. Um, I pray that it's going to be a, a special treat to gather around God's Word, and uh, I kind of, at this desk, I feel more like a news anchor than a preacher, and and I have John's books behind me. It makes me feel more wise than my books. And so let's go ahead and get started. Um, during this crisis, this pandemic, have you, have you made observations about how people are responding to it? How you have some people who are paralyzed by fear, and you have others who don't even take it seriously. Uh, you have those frontline workers, like the medical workers, uh, you have people who are essential, and now some people find out their jobs are not essential. But we have a great church, and I have really enjoyed watching specifically our church gather around, um, use technology, um, think about whatever we can to serve one another. And it's been difficult to serve our community 
But it's in that and thinking about our community that I want you to think with me for just a second. Could you imagine being alone during this crisis? Could you imagine being really alone like a non-believer? If you didn't have any, any hope, if you didn't have any trust that there's a God who's really in control right now, if you didn't have a church to gather around you, um, if you didn't have if you didn't have a church that you belong to, if you didn't have these Zoom sing-alongs and prayer meetings, uh, if you maybe you're laid off and and nobody cares, maybe you have a family that's depending on you and and there's just a lot of stress, and so my heart goes out to these people and these people are in our community and our neighborhoods and they're out there right now and, and and they have no understanding of who God is. And so uh, let's pray for them and let's remember them. And, and when all this passes and it will, um, let's uh, reach out to them in a, in a special way and pray that there's opportunities. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us as we get started. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for these special opportunities to come together, albeit through technology. Uh, we're still the church and we're still together. And I pray this evening that we would gather around your word and we would learn something new. Um, I pray for myself, Father, that you would help me. This is uh, something I'm not used to and so that I could just get out of the way and let you speak through your word, through your servant. And I pray for those that are listening Father, that it would be a special blessing to them as well. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. You know, uh, as I prepared for this, I I really would prefer to do this in person. I would prefer to be looking out at all those wonderful faces and uh, those encouraging nods. And uh, so when I was thinking through these uh, words in this text, I just envisioned having our church out there. I, I can see Miss Connie and Jean. Uh, I can see Papa Mel. Uh, I can see Bo and Donna. I can see Fred and Mary. And Mary, we love you and, and we appreciate you. I can see Dave and Jen. Actually, Jen's not there because as often she's watching the kids. So Dave, you can tell her it'll be on recording. She can watch it there. And I look back at the back and I see all the, the young faces, Nathan and Michael and Maddie and Ian. Yep, Ian, you're still young. Uh, <laughs> and I see Katie and, and I, I see all these folks. I see back over here the Pills and Oliver and Caitlin. And, and I see um, Daryl and Leota. And I see uh, Mr. Brown and I see Kay. Glad you're here, Kay. And I, over here, I see I see little Hallel. She's being rocked at just that right tempo that she likes. And I see Jeff, and and I see um, just I see the um, Alicia, and I see um, the Underwoods. The I see Don, the old rascal. I love Don. I see um, the Moonies, and I, I just see all these faces, and I have to envision that. So that we're all here right now. We are a church. And so I thank you for coming this evening. Let's go ahead and get started. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. 
and it's in verse 14 through 29. You know, and rather than read through the text, I'm just going to let it unfold as we go, because it's, it's a, a fascinating story. There's a statement that I want to direct your attention to as we get started. It's in verse 23. I just want to go there right away. And it's, um, all things are possible to him who believes. And then a response, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is about faith. It's about believing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. Galatians 2, we live by faith of the Son of God. Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We believe and we live by faith. And faith is the dominating feature in the life of every Christian. Because we have to live by faith. We put our trust entirely in what we cannot see. We believe in a God that we've never seen. We believe in Christ that we've never seen. We believe in a Holy Spirit that we've never seen. We believe in a death and a resurrection that we've never seen, a justification that we've never seen, a fulfillment and an eternal heaven that we've never seen. So we live by faith. It's not a blind faith. It's a faith based on evidence that we find in God's Word. For over two years now, the disciples have walked with Jesus. So they've lived by sight. Uh, they have been with him 24-7. They've heard everything that he's taught. And I need to get a drink, sorry. <laughs> they've heard everything that he's taught, and they've seen how he handles different situations. They've seen the miracles that he's performed. They've seen him raise people from the dead. Uh, they've seen him cast out demons. They experience all of this with him. And they, they live by sight, but soon they would have to live by faith. They would always have the memory of what they seen, of what they had seen, but they would live by faith. But in this incident, it's, it's interesting because Jesus isn't there with them. So they almost get a prelude to what they're going to be living in just a few short months. Um, and it's like, how are you going to behave when I'm not there? How are you going to access the power of God when I'm not there? Um, they needed to learn that because that's the way they were going to have to live within a few short months. Jesus is going to die. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to be gone. And they would have to live by faith like we do. Our salvation comes by grace through faith. And even the faith that we have is given to us by God. Is it perfect? No. Is it imperfect? Yeah. Is it, is it uh, weak and wavering? It is. Is it doubting? Yes. But is it sufficient? Yes. This is a lesson that's before us today in this text. And so in this part of Mark, we have a few chapters here. It's lessons uh, consecutively. And so the first lesson is on faith. Uh, we just saw last week the transfiguration. Greg did a fabulous job teaching that. Thank you, Greg. And now this is on faith. We have a lesson in humility, a lesson on offenses, a lesson on the seriousness of sin, 
a lesson on divorce, a lesson on the place of children in the kingdom, a lesson on true wealth, a lesson on sacrificial service, leadership during sacrificial service. And, and then the final lesson is in chapter 10, verse 46 through 52 on faith again. And so it's like, it's like uh, this is bracketed. We start with a lesson on faith and then we end with a lesson on faith. It's like two bookends. And then uh, in the end of chapter 10, after these lessons are finished, we go into verse or chapter 11, verse 1, where Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem for the final week of his life. In this text, Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. It's like he's out of glory and back into reality. Like Moses came down from the mountain, from being in the presence of God and God's glory, and at the bottom of the mountain, who was waiting for him? Well, it was these faithless people and just like that, Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration with his father. And he comes down from the glory with his father to these people, these faithless people at the base of the mountain waiting for him. And it's interesting, I found some contrast uh, with this. We look at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's high up on a mountain. In this, in this uh, story, it's down in a valley. In transfiguration, there's glory. Here there is suffering. In the transfiguration, God dominates the scene. Here Satan, or more specifically, his demon dominates the scene. In the transfiguration, the father is pleased. Here the situation, the father is tortured. In the transfiguration, there's a perfect son. Here there's a violated son. In the transfiguration, fallen men are in holy wonder. Here, a fallen son is in unholy horror. So let's go ahead and dive into the text. Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. We'll start in verse 14. It says, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. I do have a slide for this. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. He gave us a slide. You can see Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down the mountain and uh, the big crowd at the bottom. So I don't know if he got that, but <laughs> he enjoyed that. Um, and, you know, I had a misunderstanding of this. It's very clear, but for me, when I understood it, it was that there was a big crowd and there were the disciples arguing with them. But actually what it is, is you have a large crowd that's gathered around the nine disciples who are having a religious debate or an argument with these scribes. And if we know these scribes and Pharisees by now, we know what the argument's about. They're using this opportunity to try to discredit uh, Jesus and his authority and his power. They're trying to um, invalidate the ministry of the disciples, especially since there's a failure here. And they just followed him from, from town to town, just uh, attempting to do this. And I think it's interesting because Jesus shows up right in the middle of this, and it's, it may be a little awkward. We see in verse 15, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Now, I have a slide for this that Jonathan gave me, and I, I, I don't have a lot. I only have three slides, but we'll enjoy what he has. 
Now, I, I will put to you that I don't think Jesus had a glow about him. I feel like Jonathan may have disagreed, but uh, I asked him, I said, why did you put a glow around Jesus? And he said, because he's Jesus. But, um, you know, some have speculated that because Jesus had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration that he still had a, a glow about him or an aura about him. But I feel like that's not true because he told his disciples on the way down not to tell anyone about this, so he would not have contradicted himself. Um, but he went up to these, uh, in verse 16, he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And I love this because it almost seems like he's coming to the aid, coming to the defense, supporting his men. And he says, what are you discussing with them? Now, Jesus asked a question here. Did he really need to know the answer? He knows everything. And so Jesus was likely the source of this discussion, probably what the scribes were, were pushing against. And so we'll just move on in verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. It's interesting here that you, you don't hear from the scribes. You know, maybe they've learned their lesson when they engage Jesus, how it turns out. But you also don't hear from the disciples. Maybe they were humiliated or embarrassed because they had just failed. But who we do hear from is someone from the crowd. It's the father of this boy. And he, he has a personal interest, and it doesn't have to do with a religious debate. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you. He, he refers to Jesus as teacher. Now, I didn't get too much from that. It's an appropriate, um, you know, it's, it's appropriate to call Jesus teacher. I would prefer if he called him Lord, but then I looked over and I think it was the Matthew account and he did call him Lord. So, um, so I didn't take too much from that, but he says, I brought my son to you and, and you weren't here. And uh, in the description of what's going on with his son, that this demon seizes him and it slams him, and, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. Those are, those are so violent and graphic and descriptive. And this is, this is a terrible thing that's going on. And the one thing that I grabbed onto in the last part of that, I said, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. I, to I told your disciples. Instead of I, I asked, I begged, I pleaded with, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Why couldn't they do it? You know, we remember in Mark 3.15, Jesus clearly gave them authority to cast out demons. And we even saw in chapter 6, uh, them actually casting out demons. But in this situation, they couldn't do it. And I think it's a great question of why couldn't they? I'm not going to answer that now. We'll get back to it in a little bit. Verse 19 and he answered them, and he said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. I love that. Bring him to me. The word that we see at the beginning of that, O oh, unbelieving generation, O oh, conveys weariness, and it conveys sorrow. 
and an emotion. Unbelieving, and Luke adds perverted generation. You know, because most of the crowd were not believers, and uh, the scribes, they were only there to, to try to discredit Jesus. This, this harsh rebuke is likely meant for his, his disciples. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you or bear with you? That seems to exude like a spiritual exasperation. Jesus um, is emotional here. He's, he's very human. Um, he's, um, he's sorrowful and he's weary. Jesus came down from heaven um, where he had a, a perfect relationship uh, with the angelic realm, with the, in the heavenly realm, with his Father, with the Holy Spirit. And he came down to a fallen world with men who wavered. We are loved, but we forget how much he puts up with from us. We know that he's long-suffering and he's patient, but it must grieve him to see us walking in unbelief or to see us believing something that the world tells us or that Satan tells us is just untrue. We should not think that he's okay with this. And, and his sharp rebuke for unbelief is meant for us too. In verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. When this demon saw Jesus through this boy, and he saw the gaze of Jesus upon him, when he came face to face with our Lord, he went crazy. And that's often how demons react when they come into contact with our Lord. They know that it's the end of the road for them. Uh, they know that uh, that it's the end. You know, in, in referring back to the, the text here about the, I don't want to just breeze past this, it threw him into convulsions. And for me to really sit and think about that, his body was convulsing. And he fell to the ground and he's rolling around and he's foaming at the mouth. And Luke records that this this evil spirit was mauling him, which uh, means it was crushing him or it was shattering or breaking. And so it's very graphic. It's very devastating words that they're using there. I want to add this, and I think it's sad that it seems like sometimes demons have more of an awareness of who Jesus is than, well, certainly in this situation than anyone else in that valley. And sometimes uh, that can be true of us today. In verse 21, he asked, um, and he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So again, why does Jesus ask this question? He knows all. Well, I think there could be two reasons. Um, one is that he wants this father to share the story, and he wants his disciples to hear it. This is a teaching opportunity that Jesus isn't going to miss out on. And the disciples, they need to hear the pain. They need to hear the magnitude of the suffering that this father and this boy are going through. Secondly, um, I do think that Jesus wants the father to know 
that he's not bringing his son to a power, he's bringing his son to a person. Jesus wanted to bear this man's pain and listen to his story. Likewise, he wants to hear our story. He wants us to come and lay our burdens down at his feet. He wants to draw you close, and he wants to listen to you. Now keep in mind, while Jesus is asking this question, the father is responding, this boy is on the ground foaming at the mouth, being attacked by this demon. I almost forgot about it as I'm reading through this to consider that all this is a very dramatic scene. Can you imagine for a moment just the daily struggle that this boy and his father went through? The father can't even communicate with his son. Make no mistake, this demon, it was trying to kill this boy. It was literally trying to destroy him. And it was doing it for a very long time. But I want you to listen to this. God preserved the life of this boy. The life of this man's only son. Just for this moment. So that his only son, Christ, might be glorified in him. I'm going to read that again. But God has preserved the life of this man's only son for this moment, so that God's only son, Christ, might be glorified in him. And the man says to Jesus, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. But if you can, is that a great statement of faith or what? The word, uh, take pity on us and help us, the word for help there, is a very strong word. It means come running to the aid. Come running to my aid and help me. Uh, you can almost hear the Father's plea right here in this statement. I don't really know you, but can I trust you? This is my only son. Are the rumors really true? I've heard that you can do miracles, but I just saw your men fail. I see you're willing but do you really have the power? I've seen with my own eyes the rage and aggression that this demon has over my son, and I'm powerless. Do you really have the power that even the demons will obey you? In verse 23, Jesus responds, and Jesus said to him, If you can, this is not a question, but it's an exclamation. If you can, really? Are you serious? If I can? Uh, daily I've been performing miracles and casting out demons, going from town to town. You know, Jesus doesn't have an identity crisis. Jesus knows who he is. But obviously this man doesn't know who Jesus is. Maybe he knows about him, but he doesn't know Jesus. This is a situation where we see the created doubting the creator. In Mark chapter 1, we saw the leper who he trusted in Jesus' power, but he didn't know if Jesus was willing. In this situation, it's the opposite. This father, he trusts that Jesus is willing, but he doubts Jesus' power. This man had heard about Jesus, but he did not know Jesus. If he would have known Jesus, he wouldn't have doubted him. He wouldn't have doubted his power. It's kind of like a sports star or someone we read about in history. 
where we have so much information and maybe we feel like we've spent time with them that we feel like we know them. But the reality is we, we just have information about them and we just know about them. And so um, the real, the, uh, to really know somebody, you must walk with them daily and listen and learn about them, but also let them into your life, let them into your mind, let them into your heart, and yes, even let them into your decision-making. Trust in them and have enough courage to depend on them. Tell them about your hopes and dreams and your challenges and your fears. May we not go through life knowing about Jesus, but never really knowing him personally. May we not be held up just by the information that we have about him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 through 23. I saw that Greg used this as well last week. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so may we deeply know the Savior and be known by him. This man did not yet know Jesus. He only wanted what he could, he only wanted what Jesus had. And he doubted that Jesus could even do that. He wasn't looking for a sovereign Lord and master. And so in verse 23, Jesus said, if you can. And then he said, all things are possible to him who believes. And isn't this the lesson right here? It's almost like Jesus said this and directed his gaze at his disciples. All things are possible to him who believes. When we place our trust in God, no thing that is within his will is impossible. We serve a God who is all-powerful and nothing is too big or too hard for him. He's the creator, and nothing is outside his reach. Nothing is impossible for our God. It is not about our great faith, but it's about our great God who has compassion on us. When we read this statement, um, when we read this statement, we may tend to focus on what we get out of it, the access to God's power, the stuff. But let's look at the end of that, for him who believes, because we were created to know God and to make him known. So isn't that the best thing in the world that we could get, that God would give us the faith to believe? The good news about the gospel is not that submitting your life to Christ, now everything, it goes easily, or you get everything you ever wanted. The good news of the gospel is that when you trust in him, you get him. You get Jesus, and he's enough in any situation. There are a few things that this does not mean. There are some particular denominations out there who would teach that the focus here is your faith. And if the amount or quality of your faith is enough, then it will tip the scale, and God will have to give you what you want. And if he doesn't, 
then it was because of your lack of faith or because maybe God's not good. And we know that's not true. We know we have a good God. This doesn't mean that you get whatever you want. God's ways are not our ways. There's a, a wonderful video out there. I encourage you to go uh, look up. John told me about it. It's uh, Go to YouTube and search Jonathan Evans' eulogy. Uh, many of you know Tony Evans. Uh, his wife passed away recently. and She was a, an amazing and godly woman. And her son, their son, Jonathan Evans, gave a eulogy. And in this, he was talking specifically about this. He had talked about how he really struggled with God because there were so many people praying, um, different people in their church, but also citywide, different churches worldwide, praying that his mom would overcome this, um, I think it was cancer, and then she died. And he, he was just making this statement, like, God, didn't you hear our prayers? Like, we are a, a faithful family. And it, it was just really powerful. He talked about how God responded to him, and he said that you don't come to me with a sense of entitlement, and, and you don't tell me how to get my glory. And he said that in all those prayers, they were answered. Either she was going to be healed, or she was going to be healed. She was going to be with family, or she was going to be with family. He said the answer was always yes or yes. It was just uh, it was a great encouragement. And I appreciate John, you telling me about that. Let's think about something that hits closer to home. How about uh, Pamela Summerall? You know, a tragic situation. We all know Mel Summerall. And when his baby was nine months old, uh, she contracted a virus that attacked her heart. And, and she died very quickly. And um, Mel went into a deep depression and it was during this time, up to this point, he had not been very serious about his, his Christian walk. And during this time, he got discipleship from a man. And God used this situation. And, and I know Mel um, would attribute a lot of the ministry that he's done for the next several decades um, to the way that God used how he, he took Pamela home and then used Mel as a, a disciple maker, a church planner, a missionary, started a church. And so all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So maybe we need to try to align our hearts to his will instead of trying to get him to align with ours. So all things are possible to him who believes. If this is true, then the inverse has to be true. All things are impossible to him who walks in unbelief. You can gain the whole world but lose your soul. In verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's an honest man. It's one of the most humble confessions I've seen in the Bible. You can almost you can almost hear the man say, "Now I put my trust in you. I submit to you as Lord." You know, I don't know if this is a salvific moment. It doesn't tell us that. 
But he says, I submit to you as Lord. I believe, but I'm undone. I'm exposed. My faith is frail and weak. It's new and it's incomplete. Oh, I, I want to know you deeper, but please help me, Lord. And it was enough. It's the same word where he says, help my unbelief that we saw earlier, where it's a strong word that says, come running to my aid. Help my unbelief. Dispel dispel my unbelief. Help me to trust in you. In verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter again. So Jesus's public ministry was over. It was done. And he saw the crowd gathering and he didn't want to perform this miracle necessarily in front of the crowd. And so he commanded the spirit to come out and never enter again. It was permanent. In verse 26, after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, again, it's a very dramatic display. It came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. We see this demon's final protest. He's actually convulsing this boy. There's convulsions. In, in this, I see an allusion to the death and resurrection of Christ. Because in verse 27, it says, But Jesus took him by the hand and he raised him up. So we see Jesus cast this demon out. The boy is so depleted. Most in the crowd think he's dead. When Jesus died on the cross, and he was put in the tomb for three days. Many of his disciples lost faith. There was a pause in this situation. Most in the crowd thought he was dead. They thought he failed. But then Jesus takes him by the hand, and he raises him up. I have one more slide for this. This is uh, Jesus taking the boy by the hand, and he raises him up. You can see the big smile on the boy. And apparently Jesus is Caucasian. You know what's interesting is this is the last that we hear from the boy and his father. But I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to pass this moment without thinking of this. And, and honestly, I thought about this just today. Can we imagine this boy and his dad? And, the, and, and what happens now, the restoration that we see, it's probably a conversation. His father gets to hear his boy laugh. He gets to see his boy play, make friends, lead a normal life. And so I don't know why I just passed over that the first time, but I don't want to make that mistake again. In verse 28, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? Well, Jesus and his disciples are now in a house alone. We don't know whose house it is. And now it's time for his disciples to learn the lesson. It's time to go to school. We're thankful for Matthew's account because he gives us a little more insight. 
Some of us may be left thinking, well, how much faith do you need? Listen to this in Matthew 17. Jesus says, because of the littleness of your faith, and this is in response to why could we not drive it out, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, and that's the smallest seed for agricultural Israel, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. If you have the smallest of the small, if you have the bare minimum, but you have it, no thing is impossible for you. In verse 29, and he said to them, this kind can, um, sorry, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Some say, but prayer and fasting. In fact, I think it's in Matthew or Luke that it says prayer and fasting. Um, some Bibles, other, um, like I think the NIV says prayer and fasting even here in Mark, but it was probably added later. So what we're going to go with is this kind cannot come out but anything but prayer and maybe fasting. So we start with this kind. What does that mean, this kind, this kind of demon? Maybe there are some demons that are different than others. Maybe some are more powerful. Maybe some are more stubborn. Um, when we walk in unbelief, one of the first things to go is our prayer life. Uh, many of us as believers, we've had seasons where we were struggling. Our faith was weak, and we likely saw our prayer life uh, go down as well, at least the consistency. Prayer is the vehicle that carries our faith to God. Prayer moves us into a place of dependence and trust. And I think Jesus would, Jesus would tell his disciples, and he would tell us too, that you're never going to be able to perform effective ministry in yourself. You're never going to have that power. You're always going to have to depend on me, and you're going to have to trust me through prayer. Even when, when we go do evangelism, we don't, we don't trust that we have a, a slick and clever gospel presentation. God has to act. God saves. I have a conclusion. I believe, but help my unbelief. Isn't that really all of us, if we're honest? It wasn't perfect, but weak. And it was incomplete. Yet somehow, because we have a benevolent Savior who takes pity on us, he has compassion for his children, and he also has the power to do the impossible. He blesses us. It was enough. He tolerates our weak faith and our inconsistent prayer life, but it's not like he enjoys it. What we should know is that we are loved beyond measure. Did you ever grow up and realize all that you put your parents through and you couldn't believe how much they loved you? Even through that, you didn't realize it until you were an adult. Well, our Heavenly Father loves us perfectly, but we should do all we can to chase hard after Him and seek to glorify Him. If our faith is small, okay, that's where, where you're at right now, but it shouldn't stay small. How can we grow in the area of belief? How can we grow our faith? I'm glad you asked. 
First, we need to admit that we struggle in this area. We need to identify the object of our faith and keep our eyes in him, on him. We don't put our trust in anything else. Uh, we don't put our trust in our job or our education or even our church. And, and I struggle sometimes as much as I love John and David and Fred and Alan. Um, they're human. And so we shouldn't completely put our trust in them. We put our trust in God. Be intentional about spending time with God, learning more about Him, sharing yourself with Him. Serving. Serving has been a great way for me to grow and mature and for me to be able to see God do the impossible. Maybe you don't know how to get started. Well, get discipleship. Have a mature believer walk alongside you and show you things that we all had to learn at some point. The spiritual disciplines, how to have a consistent prayer life, how to study your Bible. What does a personal spiritual life actually look like? This mentor can be your guide into a, a deeper walk with Christ, into um, a deeper faith in God. God has, and he still is using amazing men in my life, and I'm very thankful. Faith is good. Faith is essential. But we don't put our faith in faith. We put our faith in God. We should pray fervently and in submission to God's will. When we trust God, we will desire to align our will with His. Uh, I think the best example of this is Jesus praying in the garden. God, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Was he praying fervently? He was sweating blood. But not my will. Yours be done. So he prayed fervently, but he submitted to the Father's will. Greg gave a benediction last week, and I enjoyed that so much that I would love to do that as well. Uh, if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to preach your word, to enjoy your word, to enjoy the fact that you love us so much. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to believe in you. It seems like in these days we need 
to know that you are in control and you truly are. Thank you for John giving me the opportunity to deliver your word to our to our church. Father, I, I thank you for your word. It's just so rich. I thank you for our church and all that they are doing and have done to serve one another, but to also serve our community. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would strengthen our faith. We pray that you would show us tangible ways and then you would motivate us that we wouldn't just gain information, but that there would be transformation, that we would be changed and that we would know you better. We wouldn't just know things about you, but we would know you and we know that you're enough. Lord, we love you. Our faith is not perfect. Our love for you is not perfect. But Lord, we can grow in those areas. Help us to love you in a way that's that's more pure, that's, that's more wonderful. Help our faith to grow in a way that we do see effectiveness in our ministry. And help us, Lord, to never spend time walking in unbelief. We pray all these things. In the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen.